0: Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Uh, since we moved to uh, Orville here, one of the most anticipated weeks of the entire year is the week of July 4th. And uh, if you've never been to, um, Orville during this week or, um, to Orville particularly during the fireworks, I, uh, I encourage you to come out. Actually, I uh, just heard the other day that last year there were 32,000 people, uh, in attendance at last year's fireworks. And so, uh, the fireworks here is obviously a big, uh, deal. Some people don't get out of town till, uh, 1 AM, uh, because of all the traffic, but, uh, it's a good time. Um, and, uh, have really kind of the best, uh, fireworks in the area. So, uh, if you haven't done that, that's, uh, this coming Saturday night, I think it's at ten 15, I'm not sure, but, uh, the other thing that we've done, um, for the last three years as a church is we've actually had the tradition of being in the parade. And uh, usually what we do is we have a different theme for the parade each year. And uh, that theme reflects our vacation Bible school theme. Um, So the theme is uh, through Answers in Genesis, and it's called a time lab. And so we had a time machine, uh, gears, scientists. Uh, We were spraying people with water and I really had, uh, had a good time. Uh, doing that uh, last night at the parade. If you have not registered for our Vacation Bible School, I encourage you to do that. Um, You can go to our website, crossvieworville.com. And uh, on that scrolling banner, I think it's the first one actually that uh, uh, scrolls by there. Uh, there, There's a link you could click on and uh, sign up for our uh, Vacation Bible School. So that's going to be next week, which is uh, Sunday, uh, July 8th through the 12th. Uh, Sunday through a Thursday is what it is, so uh, really looking forward to uh, to that. The other thing, uh, last thing, and then we'll get into our podcast for today. The last thing I wanted to say before we uh, begin is nobody took me up on my offer from last week. I made the offer for you to message me, email me, call me, whatever, and um, ask any specific questions that you had. We talked about anxiety last week, um, and nobody uh, messaged me. So uh, I seriously do want to hear from you, and so that's always an open invitation at any time, Um, but um, I guess I'll just have to talk about uh, my own thing today. So we're talking about anxiety still, uh, and so I want to continue that conversation. Um, In light of that, I think it's important to realize that all of us do face this problem. Um, We get anxious about all sorts of things, you know, will I ever get married, Will I be able to have kids? Will I get cancer? What if I have a miscarriage? I don't want to get old. Will I ever lose weight? Will so and so like me? Will I be rejected by my parents? And on and on and on it goes. And we talked about last time, um, the fact that uh, this really this problem of anxiety is at its core a worship disorder. And some of you may still think that I'm being too simplistic in my outlook on anxiety. And I want to give you an example that I hope uh, might be helpful to you. Now, Imagine with me, just for a moment, that you die today and you go to heaven to be with Jesus. And imagine with me that you live with Jesus in heaven for the next 10,000 years. That's 10,000 years of complete unending joy. You have absolutely no anxiety and you find out that the most intense earthly pleasure of this life was like playing with mud compared to being with Christ. The pleasures of a vacation at the beach or of enjoying ice cream on a summer day or a day at the lake or sexual intimacy, all of it seems so dull compared to the depth of joy that can be found in Christ. And imagine. After spending uh, 10,000 years with Christ, uh, God tells you that he is going to send you back in time to the moment where you died, and he wants you to finish out your life until you're 95 years old. And imagine, furthermore, that when God sends you back, he allows all of your memories from the past 10,000 years in heaven to be preserved. And imagine on that day, he sends you back, uh, you walk into your house, You open the mail and you see that your rent bill is due. You take a look at your bank account and you realize that you don't have enough money in the bank to pay your rent. Now, of course, this is not going to happen, but just humor me for for a moment here um, with this this, uh, scenario. If it did happen, would the past 10,000 years have any effect at all on how you thought and processed that problem of rent? Would anything be different? Or would you begin to fret and worry and be anxious and have a panic attack? I would submit to us that all of our anxiety problems, and I think, really, uh, practically all of our sin problems would have been cured. If 10,000 years in God's presence won't cure anxiety, I don't know what will. What makes a difference? What makes me, uh, having experienced that time in the presence of God... Uh, what makes that? Di- what makes the difference in how I'm processing anxiety here in this life? And, and I think that the reason why we would view it differently really comes down to one thing: we would know our God. And this is why I firmly believe that the struggle uh, with anxiety is a struggle that we have not because of a chemical imbalance, which, by the way, cannot be demonstrated anyway. Uh, but we struggle because we have a view of God problem. We have a love of God problem. We have an idolatry problem. We have a worship problem. We are a people who have low views of God and high views of self. Does your theology ever work its way down to the street level? Does the sovereignty of God ever mean more to you than words on the page of some systematic theology or some poem in the Psalms? A.W. Tozer opens his book on the knowledge of the holy with these words. He says, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so noble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. The low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. This loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal, and since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field." Uh, to- Tozer goes on to say, that's in his introduction. Uh, he actually goes on to say in, uh, in um, chapter one, the opening words, which is very well known. He says this, quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, end quote. If that's true, if the statement, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and if it is also true... That our fight against anxiety would be improved or actually uh, just completely uh, eradicated in terms of having anxiety by spending 10,000 years in heaven. If that is true, if those things are true, then we as Christians need to be reinvigorated afresh to pursue a robust knowledge of who our God is. I remember... When I first went off to Bible college, uh, and one of the professors was admonishing us as freshmen to build our biographies of God. You know, God is good, God is just, God is my shield, God is sovereign, all those things. And to to build that biography and to know who our God is. And I recall really to my shame uh, thinking to myself uh, I, I was thinking, you know, I get all this. Come on. I know who God is. I realize he's good and he's holy and He's just so I understand. Da, da, da. Let's get past that. Let's get past that to the real, you know, meat and potatoes and tell me the good stuff, like how to overcome sin or how to, you know, witness to a Mormon or how to win an argument with an atheist or something important like that. And I'm I'm really almost ashamed to share that now because I recognize that if God is the supreme treasure of my heart, I will be consumed with knowing Him. And not only that, but I failed to see that knowing God, that knowledge of God, that biography of God is the path to accomplishing all those things I wanted to accomplish. Knowing God is the way that I overcome sin. Knowing God is the means to be a better witness. And I'd suggest for our own conversation here today, knowing God is the means for overcoming anxiety in my own soul. There is a disposition within the Christian life that is very countercultural, but it is the disposition that gives us freedom from anxiety. And this is something that takes grace certainly to develop. But it's this. The disposition is one where my eyes are not on my circumstances, but instead on my creator. In this same exact vein of thought, Paul Tripp says this. The difficulties of life in this fallen world are the occasion of our worry, but not the cause. Let me just say it one more time. He says the difficulties of this life in this fallen world are the occasion of our worry, but not the cause. He goes on to say this. Worry is not caused by what exists outside of us. No, worry is caused by what is going on inside of us. And I would totally agree with uh, with Paul Tripp on that. What is it that's going on inside of me that is causing the anxiety? Uh, very simply, it's a skewed value system. One of the things that I enjoy doing as a pastor is to observe uh, what people say and do. Uh, in order to understand uh, where their values lie. And one of the interesting things about worry is that it really does reveal your value system. Tell me what you worry about, and I can tell you what you treasure. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, When David is fleeing from his son uh, Absalom, he actually writes this in Psalm uh, 4, verse 8. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make make me dwell in safety. Why or how can he write this? I mean, how can David, who his son is pursuing him so that he can murder him, so that he can have the throne, how is it that David, in the middle of all of that, as he is fleeing for his life, can simply write, In peace, I'll lie down and sleep. And the reason that I think David can do that in Psalm 4 is because the thing which he values is safe and secure. He demonstrates in this one verse that he values God himself, and so he doesn't fret. Now imagine how this psalm would have been different if his highest prize was himself. David was at risk of losing his very life, and so he would have been, I mean, out of control. He would have been anxious, he would have been fretting, he would have been worried, you know, because he could lose himself. And yet... The thing that he treasured was not at risk of being lost, and that's, that's God. We actually could call uh, this verse Psalm 48 a theology of sleep. Um, because that resting in God, that knowing who God is, that being satisfied in God, that, that treasuring and valuing God, that knowing God, all of that is something in Christianity which gives me the ability to simply lay my head down on my pillow and at night and just go to sleep and not fret and worry and stay up. Uh, If there is one attribute that uh, I think guarantees the fact we never need to worry, I think it's God's immutability. Uh, Certainly, I think we put sovereignty in there as well um, because God's in control. But I think God's immutability uh, reminds us that God never changes. And so here's, here's what the hope is. I'm never at risk of losing God. Because God will always be the same. He will never change. I'm at risk at losing everything else, but not God. Uh, Here's the simple reality. When something you value is at risk of being lost, you worry. If it's your marriage, uh, if it's your bank account, if it's your reputation, you're going to worry. Because God cannot be lost. We can have freedom from worry if he's our supreme treasure. We did open up uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, with some examples of things that we link to our anxiety. You know, we worry about whether we'll get married. um, And you know what? You might not. You might get cancer. You might die from it. You might never lose weight. You might have a miscarriage. I can't promise you that these things won't happen. And the Bible doesn't give us that assurance either that those kinds of things will not happen. But when you look at the book of Job... What's interesting about that book is Job eventually comes to the realization uh, of that which we're talking about here today. Job's biggest question in that book was why? You know, why are you letting this happen to me? Why is it what's going on? Uh, how does God answer that question? How, how do you usually answer a why question? If I were to ask you, you know, why did da 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 da? The first word, probably, out of your mouth, assuming you knew the answer, would be because... Dot, dot, dot. So why did this happen? Well, it happened because of this. God never did that with Job. Job said why, and God never said because. Uh, if you look at chapter 38, and really through the end of the book, uh, God answers with who. Job says why, God says who. And so we walk away from the book of Job, recognizing that God never addressed Job's question in the way that Job wanted it answered. God never said, you know, Job you're suffering because of these 10 reasons. God concealed that information from Job. Um, and we actually do know as, as readers, you know, uh, Satan and the temptation and all those things that had happened um, kind of behind the curtain. Um, so we know as readers something that Job didn't know. Uh, but certainly we don't even know if there were more purposes that God was working uh, through that whole scenario. Um, but God never, God leaves that curtain closed He never says because um, God conceals it from him. And so instead, what does God do? He admonishes Job to rest in his character and to be satisfied with that. And I'd encourage you to read the book of Job, especially chapter 38 to the end of the book. How does Job respond to that? When God basically says, I'm not going to give the answer, but who are you to to speak against me? Who are you? Where were you when I told the waves, you can come this far, but no further? You know, are, are you there when the deer gives birth? Are you there when this, uh, What? How are, are you holding the world together? Were you there when the foundations were laid? What, Job, come on. And Job, um you know, responds in quite an interesting way. Um, he responds in chapter 42. And I want to know in particular verses 5 through 6, where he says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What does Job do? He actually repents. Job repents Of thinking wrong thoughts about who God is. He repents of not having his thoughts in the correct place and having the wrong perspective and not understanding the character and nature of God. Job is saying that once he saw God, once he saw who God was, and this is exactly what we've been talking about, my view of God. How do I view who my God is? When Job saw that and when he recognized that and when he understood that, he realized his perspective was off. Once Job saw God, and that is to say uh, God's character, he realized he had a wrong view of his circumstances. He also recognized that his misunderstanding of the character of God was worthy of repentance. And this is why we made the point earlier that we worry because we have low views of God and high views of self. I remember when our oldest son was younger and we uh, used to live down in South Carolina, uh, he demonstrated this reality in uh, kind of a very simple way, uh, but we had uh, at our back door uh, some steps that went outside. And when he, would, um, when he would leave or go out the door by himself, he would actually, he, and he could walk at this point, but he would turn around and he would crawl uh, backwards down the steps uh, so that he wouldn't fall or anything like that. But if I was holding his hand, he would actually run and jump off the top step. And I remember the first time I had to kind of tighten my grip or else he would have been on the pavement. Um, But he just demonstrated this kind of like, oh, dad's got my hands, so let's go. And he just runs and jumps off complete trust that I'm going to uh, not let him fall. He believed that if I was holding on to him, there was nothing to fear and he had a high view of of his dad he had a high view that ought to be our same disposition as Christians we ought to be people who have high views of God God is figuratively speaking holding our hand he is sovereign he is immutable and he's also good let's remember that as well God uses his sovereignty in a good way he's not arbitrary uh, he's a God who is um, using his power uh, for his own glory and for our good. Anxiety is a real thing. I'm not going to pretend that it isn't, and I'm not going to pretend that it isn't hard, um, and I'm not going to pretend, and we talked about this last time, you feel like you're in this prison, in this cage, and you just can't get out. But I also want to admonish us, That anxiety is something that can be overcome just like any other sin can be overcome. And yes, I said any other sin. Anxiety is a sin, and we talked about that last time. And so if you missed episode 26, go back uh, and listen to that. Uh, Anxiety is something that the Bible tells us not to do, not to worry. but it can be overcome. We we, we like quick uh, fixes. You know, we like to just take a pill and just have our problems gone. But it doesn't usually work that way. Fighting anxiety works like fighting other sins. It's the normal daily seeking God, pursuing God, knowing God, loving God, putting off, putting on. It's the normal battles that we face in any other category of sins. And, uh, and I think that it can be fought. And I don't think it has to be the norm uh, for believers in Christ. Um, yes, we're going to experience it from time to time in a fallen world. And we repent and we fight. But I don't think that it has to define us as Christians. In fact, the only thing that defines us as Christians is the fact that we are in Christ. So pursue your God. Love your God, know your God, and he will give you freedom from anxiety. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.